Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and you're listening to Disruptive, the podcast from Harvard's Wyss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering. The field of tissue engineering hopes to one day build three-dimensional tissues and entire organs to repair or replace a patient's damaged liver, heart, or kidney. When setting up her lab at Harvard and the Wyss in 2013, Jennifer Lewis assembled her team and they asked themselves, what is holding tissue engineering back? What could we provide that could be an absolute game changer for the field? Until recently, bioengineers have had difficulty building thick tissues. Being able to print living cells was not enough. Without blood vessels to carry nutrients in and waste out, cells die. Using the lab's custom-made housing and processes, Lewis and her team are able to embed grids of vasculature into tissue laden with human stem cells and connective matrix. Perfused and fed fluids, nutrients, and cell growth factor, their tissues are able to sustain and function for up to six weeks. And it is a game changer. Organs are a long way off, but this establishes a foundation to build on. And I'll be talking with Vice Corps faculty member Jennifer Lewis and a couple of members of her lab, Vice postdoctoral fellows Mark Schuyler Scott and Kimberly Homan. How has this team been so successful, and what do they think the future holds? I want to first understand how big the need is for organ transplants. All three chime in. First, Jennifer Lewis. In the U.S. alone, there are roughly 120,000 people every year waiting for a donor organ, and roughly 15 to 20,000 of these organs become available. And in fact, on this wait list, roughly 80% of the people that are waiting for organs are waiting for kidneys, which is a big focal point of our research. And a lot of people waiting are on dialysis, according to Kim Homan. There's about a half a million people on dialysis, which is the solution before you get a transplantable kidney. So, and roughly Medicare spends 7% of their budget on dialysis alone. So there's a huge financial push to try and get replacement organs that could solve this problem. Mark Schuyler Scott adds a bit of a good news, bad news wrinkle to the situation. About 20% of uh, organ transplants in the U.S. come from motor vehicle accidents. And as technologies like self-driving cars improve motor vehicle safety, which is obviously a great thing, the potential disruption to the supply of donor organs could be impacted in the future. Jennifer Lewis points out that this work has benefits to offer long before the ultimate goal is achieved. The grand challenge, of course, is to rebuild a kidney and to build organs for people in need. Along that path, there is also an, a real need for kidney tissues for things like drug testing, drug toxicity screening, disease modeling, things that one can do for the pharmaceutical industry and beyond that will help the general population. I read a statistic that said that uh, renal toxicity accounts for only 2% of failures in preclinical drug testing and then is responsible for 20% in phase three clinical trials. What's going on there? I mean, that's a great question. Largely, there's a mismatch between what's done preclinically and then when you go into clinical trials and you're in, in human beings. So preclinically, the way drugs are tested is first they're tested in what's called cells in a dish, which are 2D cell cultures. Um, and those are traditionally used in high-throughput screens by pharmaceutical uh, industries. And then promising drug candidates go into animal models. And unfortunately, animal models are not always predictive of the human body and how the human body would respond to a given drug. 
So there really is a need for what we call a phase zero clinical trial, which is a fail-fast way to screen drugs on three-dimensional human tissues that recapitulate um, what you would find in your body. In addition to her role at the Wies, Lewis is also Hans-Jörg Wies Professor of Biologically Inspired Engineering at the Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a member of the National Academy of Inventors, and the co-founder of two companies commercializing technology from her lab. When asked about her path, she suggests... Best to start in high school. I was really passionate about basketball in high school, but from an academic perspective, the other subjects that I loved were math and science. And I had tremendous teachers, particularly in math and physics. My dad is an engineer, and my mom was an elementary school teacher before she became a full-time mom. So it's perhaps not surprising that I took a path that ended combining those things. I'm a professor in, in engineering. I guess the first you know, decision point was coming out of high school, what to major in at college. And I gravitated towards engineering because it combined math and physics and chemistry and also concepts in how to build things. And at Illinois, I was recruited into the ceramic engineering department, which subsequently became the material science and engineering department. And I was very fortunate that I followed that path because I think being a material scientist and engineer has really established for me sort of this perfect foundation for the work that we're doing today. It encompasses, you know, all classes of materials. So ceramics, which is my original background, metals, electronic materials, polymers, and even biomaterials. But at the core of our field is either to create new materials or to improve upon existing materials by controlling their composition, their structure, their processing, and their properties. And I was really intrigued by this idea that how you make materials actually affects, if you will, their properties. So in other words, if we think about steel, there is not one strength or one ductility uh, measure for steel. It really depends on how it's processed how it's treated thermally, how quickly it's cooled down and annealed. And so the idea is that the way you make the material actually impacts its performance. And for me, that was just such a cool concept. And it really then honed in on the idea that for my PhD, I really wanted to understand how to process materials better. And so when I left the University of Illinois and started as a PhD student at MIT, I gravitated towards this group that focused on ceramic processing. And I was very fortuitous. I was at MIT from 1986 to 1990, and there were two major discoveries that happened during that period. And actually, I was in the lab that contributed to both of those. So one was high-temperature superconductivity. And for the first time, ceramic materials were, there was a discovery that showed that they could transport electricity without resistance at temperatures above liquid nitrogen. And then the second main thing was 3D printing. Uh, My (sighs) PhD advisor, I know, Michael Sima, and his collaborator, Ellie Sachs, invented a new way to fabricate materials by printing them layer by layer. And specifically the way they did it was they hacked into an inkjet printer and printed droplets onto a powder bed. And those droplets contained a polymer that fused the powder together, and they printed these objects. Those two breakthroughs in one department in one period of three or four or five years is, I mean, the world is different because of them. Yeah, no, it was really astonishing when I look back on it. I mean, I knew at the time, particularly high temperature superconductivity, which wasn't discovered in our lab, but we started working like many other labs around the world, 
24-7 on this new class of materials. You know, I knew that was a big deal, but, you know, even at the time, the 3D printing stuff looked cool, but I think I didn't really see into the future as to how big a technological impact that would have. You're in material science, your PhD is in ceramics. Now you deal with biology, you deal with cells. What was that transition like, and how did you learn what you need to know? We had developed a number of printable materials, and one material in particular uh, was one that we could essentially uh, print and embed within polymer matrices and leave behind open channels. And these open channels we referred to as microvasculature. And, you know, there was an obvious aha moment at that point. Although this was a synthetic material, I realized that the field of tissue engineering was being hindered by the inability to print tissues that had vasculature within them. You're not yet dealing in tissue engineering. You're still dealing in inanimate, right? That's right, in synthetic polymer composites. But with this advance, we started thinking, you know, oh my gosh, we have an ability to impact the field of tissue engineering. But we don't know anything about cells, so we need to learn quick. <laughs> and, you know, fortuitously, the opportunity to move to the Wies Institute and Harvard University hit right around this time that we had made that discovery. And so it was the perfect platform and opportunity to take advantage of all of the biological ecosystem of innovation that exists here in the Boston area and in specifically in the Wies Institute and at Harvard. So we started our lab in 2013, the spring of 2013, and as a focal point, we built an entire lab around bioprinting and tissue engineering. And then it was recruit people that really knew the field, and I was very fortunate to attract Kim Homan as a postdoc to my group and Mark uh, Schuyler Scott as another postdoc to the group, and coupled with a PhD student that moved with me to Harvard who changed his entire PhD towards bioprinting, David Koleski, the four of us really started to dig in and, and really shape uh, this, this effort in our lab. You mentioned it, we talked about it off air, that you're like me, you're a basketball nut. Um, and you played with passion. It's a big part of your life. How would you kind of look at a basketball team and this team that you've just laid out of Mark and Kim and David and yourself? A basketball team runs um, with a point guard, and I consider myself to be the point guard, try to set up the play, set up the vision. Um, and I am short, so it's an uh, appropriate position for me. It's the position I played. And then, you know, you have other role players on the team that really have to take on different responsibilities. And it's fair to say that in this context, all of the three, you know, other players on the team were really the forwards because they were pushing progress forward every day. One of the forwards... Mark Schuyler Scott. We describe it as a as a moonshot. Organ manufacturing is unsurprisingly extremely hard. And the years that I've spent into this, it it feels harder and harder as you uh, work at the, the problem more. And really the challenges are at every level of the process. Now I, I should add that you don't need you know, 100% of the liver or 100% of the kidney in order to um, to be doing quite well. Patients with uh, chronic kidney disease will, you know, lose a lot of healthy kidney tissue, but still be very functional. It's only right down at the end stage renal failure where 
um, you don't have enough filtration occurring to uh, carry out the processes of, of cleaning the blood. And that's when they have to go on, on dialysis. So you don't need to replace 100% of the organ capacity in order to, uh, to have a, a very significant therapeutic benefit. So that's sort of an important thing to, to keep in mind. And, you know, it's um, working in our favor that we don't, we don't need a, a full. As you know, you can, you can donate one of your two kidneys. So that, that lops off 50% right away and, uh, and you're fine. Schuyler Scott can trace a pretty clear path of questions and experiences that led him to this work and this team. I um, did my undergraduate at Cambridge University, and that was in engineering, a broad sort of engineering uh, uh, training. And then I specialized uh, during my master's for um, electrical and information engineering. So in around that time, I was getting very interested in using engineering to study living systems, to understand what makes them tick or, or how they work. And during information engineering as a master's, I worked with Professor Simon Laughlin at, at Cambridge University, and um, together he and I were working on ways of quantifying information transmission in the brain. So literally treating it like a telecommunications network, transmitting information from one part of the brain to another, and uh, trying to understand the energy efficiency of that. So the brain, it turns out, is extremely energy efficient. And so I was was very into sort of theoretical modeling of living system like the brain. And modeling is great, but I, I, for my PhD, I really wanted to get into more experimental work. And so I did my PhD at MIT in the health science and technology. And during my PhD, I really transitioned towards more experimental work. So instead of you know, mathematical models of, of cells, I wanted to I use laser microfabrication to create surfaces to create uh, environments in which the cells could undergo development and you could study models of, of developing neurons. And then modeling wasn't enough. I wanted to direct. And so I, I moved on from studying natural processes to trying to direct them. So I, I used laser microfabrication again to control the development of, of single neurons. And Working at the single cell level got me uh, very excited into uh, about tissue engineering, and I got into the three-dimensional work using laser microfabrication again to manufacture capillaries. And that was sort of my first foray into the problem of supplying nutrients, of building blood vessel networks that could uh, supply tissues in, in three dimensions. Then I, um, I did a brief foray into a startup in 3D printing, which is actually now a a pretty large company called Formlabs. They manufacture 3D printers. And I kind of started itching to get back into biology. And so that was what brought me into, uh, into Jennifer's lab. And my work in Jennifer's lab is really chiefly focused on tissue vascularization, the challenge of building large and thick tissues and keeping them alive using printed vascular networks. And it's a, really a continuation of this, this sort of building starting, you know, in my PhD at the singular cell level and sort of trying to start now building up to, uh, to tissue scales that, that could be uh, of therapeutic interest. He offers a brief introduction to 3D printing. 3D printing is, is really trying to manufacture things from the bottom up. It can be distinguished from traditional manufacturing, which is a subtractive process. You start with a lump of material and you drill, mill, lathe it into its final shape. In 3D printing, you're trying to start with lots of tiny pieces of material and construct that into, in an additive way, in a, uh, into a 3D shape. 
And it gives you a lot of access to a lot of geometries and abilities the traditional manufacturing approaches have not been able to address. So it can make you know, complicated lattice structures in a way that would take an expert machinist months and months of work. You can do it at the push of a button on, on 3D printing. What's the challenge that you have to overcome to take it from 3D printing to bioprinting? Yeah, so bioprinting is 3D printing, but instead of uh, squirting out engineered materials like plastics or uh, metals, you are actually extruding or squirting out uh, cellular material. So you're, you're working printing cells directly. Some people define bioprinting as, as printing of just biological materials, but the more stringent definition of 3D bioprinting is that you're printing cells themselves. Kim Holman recalls some of the early curiosity she experienced with bioprinting. You start thinking, well, what if the starting material wasn't just plastic? What if we put living cells inside of that starting material? And what if we could engineer the properties of that material to be able to support living life? And what if that were human cells? And then could we, and this is kind of how the field has evolved, right? Then could we imagine putting those cells in complex architectures that start to mimic pieces of human tissue? And I think where we are now is we've been able to shoot cells out of nozzles, right? And keep them alive, which is pretty cool. And that's where the field has been for a little, a little while. She says of the lab's work. It's an incredibly exciting challenge, let's just say first off, right? It gets you up in the morning, makes you want to go to work, makes you want to do your job because the uh, scope of the problem is so enormous. And, and the challenges leading to actually getting to fulfilling that dream include a step-by-step -step scientific process of overcoming, I guess, what I call a couple of miracles, right? And each organ presents unique challenges. Like Lewis... Holman took on the family business. One of my first memories was my presence at home for birthdays and stuff were things like microscopes. Um, so it was fairly natural for me to want to do science. My father is a mechanical engineer and my mother had a degree in medical sciences and I'm a biomedical engineer, so go figure. And essentially, yeah, I took a tortuous path to get here. My undergraduate degree was actually in chemical engineering. And to pay for my undergraduate degree, I joined the military in the Marine Corps as an officer for six years after my bachelor's degree. And then after the Marine Corps, I went to biomedical engineering PhD studies. I was working on formulating biomedical contrast agents for photoacoustic imaging specifically. And in the midst of that work, I actually started a company on that called NanoHybrids, Inc. that still exists today in Austin, Texas, where I did my graduate work at the University of Texas at Austin. And um, in the midst of trying to get that company funded, it was taking us quite a long time. And I had told my co-founders of the company, I said, well, if this company doesn't get funded, I'm going to look for something else to do, you know, with the rest of my career. And they said, well, I totally understand. And uh, I found uh, Jennifer Lewis was moving to Harvard University to start this bioprinting effort. And uh, I knew, you know, the challenges with setting up a biolab since I had already done that in my last university. And I was super excited about the grand challenge of building organs and also branching out into a new field. So switching from biomedical imaging to tissue engineering. I had interviewed with her group and accepted. And in the same week, my company got funded. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
<laughs> so then I called Jennifer and I said, well, I've got this conundrum because yeah. you know, I've spent years trying to get this company funded. It's finally funded. And she was amazingly gracious and allowed me to take an 80% appointment at Harvard. And I spent 20% of my time with remotely managing the startup company that I had tried for years to fund. So I've actually, for the last five years or so, been doing both. I'm curious, you know, how your experience in the Marines and the esprit de corps there, how that maybe relates to the kind of teamwork with your your small team in bioprinting and then the larger team at the Vs. One thing that's rarely discussed about the Marine Corps, at least in my opinion, is the leadership training that they provide in terms of just the interpersonal skills. You would think of the military as I follow orders, but I think there's a much broader set of leadership and defining traits and sort of principles, life principles that, that work no matter where you go, that kind of define, you know, the training of a Marine. And I like to take those principles and use them. Similarly, I chose to come to Jennifer's lab because I could feel that same spirit even when I interviewed with her, even before I joined, that she tries to, you know, create this sort of team effort. And in academia, most efforts are very individual. And so this was very unique to see that there'd be a way to put all these brains together and really for everyone to benefit, to solve a really hard problem. And that really attracted me. As Jennifer Lewis and I begin to talk about the major challenges that need to be overcome to print and engineer a human organ, I mentioned that I've heard that until recently, no one was actually allowed to use the word organ. Yes, that's correct. So when we first started our research, we really focused on developing a multi-material bioprinting platform. And the idea was to be able to print the three main constituents of any human tissue cells, the extracellular matrix, and the vascular conduits that allow one to circulate nutrients through the printed tissue and keep the cells alive. As I said, that was really a grand challenge and a, and a big stumbling block for the field of tissue engineering before we demonstrated that this is possible. I would say that we were comfortable saying we had printed a three-dimensional tissue or a vascularized human tissue even, but I said, you know, let's not use the O word, let's not say it's an organ, because it really lacked the complexity and the function that you need to say that it, it could be implanted and it could serve as a functional organ-specific tissue. So that was the first challenge. We sort of knocked that, that one off. But the next realization we had as a team was bioprinting alone likely will not get you there. To create a kidney or another vital organ, one really needs to be able to encode within this architecture function and sub-architectures that you can't print. I mean, some of these features are even below the limit of a single cell in size, and a single cell is roughly 10 microns in diameter. So we're talking about features at the nano and micro scale. And if you were to print everything, the time scale required to print that tissue would be too long. The cells would die during the process. So we had another sort of light bulb moment, which is let's not print everything. Let's use bioprinting as a platform to print the vasculature, but let's use biology and specifically advances in stem cell biology to create a lot of the sub-architecture and function that we need. This notion that stem cell work is influencing what you're doing, is that because they're creating or supplying what you're then putting through your bioprinter? 
Yes. So there's two ways to think about using stem cells. One is to directly print the stem cells, and we've done that in our thick tissue vascularized constructs. But another way to think about and really harness the power of stem cells is to first grow what we call mini organs or organoids. And these organoids basically have all of the sub-architecture that you would want. And if we look specifically, say, at a kidney organoid, I mean, we're working very closely with collaborators at Brigham and Women's, Joe Bonventures Group and Uji Morizani. They've developed a platform to create these mini organs, um, but they're roughly a millimeter in size at most. Um, so they could never themselves replace your, your kidney. But if we took assemblies of those and we printed the vasculature within them, then we are starting to approach the multi-scale nature and function that you would need to replicate a kidney. Yeah. I mean, what I also love is the way, you know, that one field, say stem cells, has gotten to a certain point and bioprinting has gotten to a certain And it's like it's that they that if one was lagging behind, the other wouldn't be able to do what it's doing. And, and that there's this wonderful synergy going on between different fields. It's absolutely essential to have a leveraging of the, the two advances that are that are really going on in parallel. And if we think about a kidney, you know, it's the size of, of your fist, right? So it's a pretty big volume that you would have to create. But what's interesting is within, within that volume, there are a million nephrons. And these nephron units are responsible for filtering and reabsorbing the good nutrients out of your bloodstream. These nephrons are highly complex, and we get those for free in the kidney organoids. And so then the next thing would be to just take assemblies of those and connect them together with vasculature in order to replicate a three-dimensional kidney tissue. And that's work that's going on in our lab right now. Kim Holman expands on a couple of the key ingredients. You can think of organoids as stem cell-derived, meaning let's say you took a bunch of pluripotent stem cells and you put them into a ball, so kind of like a spheroid, if you will, and then you gave it those growth factors or cues to start becoming a certain tissue type like brain or kidney. And so you can get these mini organoids in a dish, and they're usually very, very small and thin. So they're a couple hundred microns maybe, so like a couple widths of a human hair, for instance. They sit in a dish, but in many cases, they recapitulate most of the cell types in that organ in a nice, complicated architecture that starts to look like that organ. And so that's an organoid. What is a nephron, and what role does the nephron play in your work? Yes, the nephron is key to my work. So kidney tissue, your kidneys, each of them are made of about a million nephrons. And the nephron is the working subunit of the kidney. So each of these nephrons takes in blood and then cleans that blood and whatever you don't need goes to your urine. So the nephron is really why a kidney is a kidney. Exactly. Crucial to their ability to print vasculature was a method that turns conventional 3D printing on its head and depends on a pretty unique form of ink. Jennifer Lewis. So we have three different types of inks. We have cell-laden ink. We have an ink that's a hydrogel that's an extracellular matrix. And then we have our fugitive ink, which is the ink that we lay down, but then we erase to create these open channels that serve as the vascular network that pervades through the tissue. So the challenges are, are manifold. First of all, we have to design these inks that all are compatible with one another, that can be co-printed. From the perspective of the cell-laden ink, 
they have to be biocompatible. The cells need to survive in that material. And then we also have to be able to remove the fugitive ink in such a way that we don't disrupt the printed structure. So getting all that to be optimized and to work in a compatible way was really quite challenging. Yeah. And this fugitive ink, that's one of the the fascinating things. Uh, And I guess it's also called sacrificial ink, which is how you get the acronym SWIFT. Yes. So SWIFT SWIFT is sacrificial writing in functional tissue. And instead of printing everything, we start with these organoid assemblies and we only sacrificially write the the vasculature. Um, So SWIFT is, is a pretty cool nomenclature. And Mark Scott is particularly proud because he says... We can tailor Swift to, to oh. do anything. You get it? <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah, Mark Scott is uh, is our pun master in the group. and uh, always, yes. always a good member of the team. He also has a bit more to say about the inks. Direct ink writing uses the viscoelastic property of materials to 3D print them. So a viscoelastic material is something like, say, mayonnaise. You probably know from from spreading it on bread, you can pick it up on your knife and it will stay on the knife even if you hold it at an angle. So it it has a a, a certain solid-like property. But if you sort of apply a little bit of shear stress to it, if you you spread it on bread, it will flow like a liquid. And so it's these set of materials, these viscoelastic materials, have properties of both solid-like and liquid-like properties. And we can use that to load something like biomaterials, like a cell-laden gel into a syringe, apply a, a pressure to push things out of the syringe, and the cells will, will flow. We don't need to heat it, um, which would, would potentially damage the cells. Um, it just flows under its own material properties. This fugitive or sacrificial ink is not going to remain part of the structure they're creating, but will be eliminated once it's done its job of creating channels. How do they do that? Well, they utilize a substance that actually liquefies as it cools, which is, of course, the opposite of what we expect when we think of ice cubes. Lewis? This material is actually composed of a tri-block copolymer, and it's a commercially available moiety, but we really harnessed it for this purpose and demonstrated its use for the first time. So the way it works is at room temperature, when it's dissolved in water, the hydrophobic segments in this tri-block copolymer are not very happy. And so it undergoes a process known as gelation, and it forms basically a a gel-like network, which means that if you extrude it out of a nozzle, it maintains a filamentary shape, essentially a cylinder, if you will, that when we erase it becomes an open channel, just like your blood vessel. But how do we erase it? Well, we cool it down, um, as you mentioned, to a temperature just above a freezing point. And under those conditions, the hydrophobic block suddenly becomes happy in water and the entire gel network solubilizes and it becomes a fluid and we can just flush it away from the three-dimensional structure. So it's really you know, counterintuitive that you would have a material that actually melts upon cooling, but we really take advantage of that feature. So as you know, it was really important for us to find an ink that would melt upon cooling because cells are robust when they're cooled down. In fact, that's how we store cells uh, in a freezer. But if we heat cells above 37 degrees C, our body temperature, they become unhappy very quickly and die. So we had to find a material that would serve as a sacrificial uh, material that we could melt upon cooling. And just because it's so counterintuitive to me, 
this material you found is something which just exists in nature or was this something that some other engineer uh, cooked up for other reasons and you just were lucky enough to find it? No, that's right. So it had been, it's, it's a commercial product and it was developed for stabilizing particles in things like paint and other formulations. But we were able to harness it for a very different purpose. Skylar Scott fleshes out some of the advances accomplished so far. If I were to bring together these hundreds of, of millions of, of cells per milliliter and you know, have a, a lump of tissue without the vasculature, then they will only survive for a couple of hours before, due to lack of oxygen and nutrients, they will uh, undergo this process of dying or necrosis. So what SWIFT allows us to do is to take that sort of bulk material with all the cellular complexity and, and density and directly write in conduits through which we can feed the tissue. And what's particularly exciting is we can do it in a free-form way. So instead of thinking about building the tissue up in a slow way, layer by layer, we can just directly write uh, with a 3D printer where in three-dimensional space we want vasculature. And this is, you know, speed is obviously important to be able to uh, bring the cells together, produce the vasculature, and start them perfusing uh, in the right amount of time. And really the whole process is is relies fundamentally on the ability of these small pieces of tissue or organoids when you centrifuge them together into this granular tissue matrix that they will function as this viscoelastic material. They have this property that allows you to write vasculature into them in three-dimensional space. So what we have here are loosely held together aggregates um, that have this viscoelastic property. So they're solid-like enough that when I lay material in them, they, it, the material stays in place. But they're liquid-like enough that when the nozzle travels to create that vascular network, the material, the tissue, is able to self-heal in the wake of that nozzle. Uh, and that really allows us to maintain the integrity of the tissue while also rapidly be, and freely being able to write vasculature in 3D space. The team does not need to create a full organ. They just need to replace function. But more than that, they don't even have to create enough organ to supply function. They just need to create enough that biology will take over and finish their work for them. I think we definitely want to, at all times, create a tissue that has function. But that arises from the architecture as much as it does from the composition of the cells and things like that that are uh, co-located. And there, we can harness biology uh, through stem cell programming and differentiation to drive the inherent biological processes to create that architecture that is absolutely necessary to have the function we want. Skylar Scott also appreciates the fact that they can rely on biology to collaborate. What we have now is a process of taking those micro tissues, compiling them in, in the order of hundreds or hundreds of thousands or millions, and then writing a vascular network into them to maintain their viability to keep them alive. And so getting that function for free with self-assembly means we don't need to work at that single cell level. That's just not, it's not feasible to manufacture uh, something at the scale of an organ at a single cellular level. We'll bring the 3D printing level in at the 1 to 200 micron length scale. That's where 3D printing really excels. And where biology really excels is at the sub you know, sub-millimeter level. So we'll let biology do what it does best. It self-assembles into functional tissues at the uh, sub-millimeter level. And this is an extremely scalable process. 
Um, and then we'll compile that and, and work with 3D bioprinting to uh, uh, create the larger functional whole. Something you've said a couple of times is that once we create that vascular network, then that allows the cells to be nourished. Where does the nourishment come from? In our body, that comes from blood. In the system we're using right now, we just use oxygenated media. So we have cell culture media that is pumped through a, a peristaltic pump uh, to supply the, the vascular network with the, with the required nutrients and oxygen. We uh, connect it up to an oxygen tank to bubble uh, oxygen through our, our media reservoir. Is that external nourishment source necessary through the entire stage of this? We keep it connected to a pump so that in vitro, in, in, in the incubator, it can be uh, uh, fed, it can continue developing. Jennifer Lewis assesses the current state of their work. If the first goal is uh, that uh, drug screening uh, step, and then the, the, the further goal is actual transplantable organs, where are you now? For our specific work on the kidney, we're about a year or two away from doing our first animal models, which is to take the kidney tissue and implant uh, into an animal. Uh, but other members of the 3D Organ Engineering Initiative have already begun to implant uh, thin liver tissue uh, into animal models and have had some tremendous success recently. So I would say the first hurdles are to demonstrate uh, their efficacy in uh, animal models, and then ultimately to move towards um, clinical trials. You've been able to create um, tissue. You've get biology to take over and, and, and continue to build it. You've gotten over one of the huge humps, which is to keep it alive. What, what are the challenges on the horizon? Implantation brings a host of challenges. So one is integration uh, into the host. So how do we suture this vascularized tissue and integrate it successfully? Will it thrive and function in a native environment? Um, these are all open questions for, for our work. And, and certainly, this is what we're driving towards now as next steps. At what point does organ or tissue rejection come into play? Well, I think the beauty of the approach that we envision, which is starting with stem cells that can be harvested patient-specific, so we say from you, for you, you know, so we're taking the cell samples from you, we're growing them and programming them for you, so they're made by you. Uh, we hope that these autologous tissues will have less issues with rejection because, as you rightly point out, when you get a donor organ, um, you have to take immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life in order to avoid rejection. This concept of from you, for you uh, is, we think, very important. So not only might you create an organ that can function in the human body, but one that actually is more easily assimilated by the human body. That's correct. That's our goal. So someone who needs a transplant First thing you do is harvest some of their cells, and that's where the process begins. That's correct. How far in the future is that? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I hope we can see this uh, in my lifetime. So, you know, we're within, I hope, a decade of maybe a clinical trial in this respect. But, you know, that, that's a dream. So we'll see. And this is how Mark views next steps. Starting from scratch. 
uh, starting from the most foundational um, advances that are required is what the first is in cell sourcing. So we're going to rely on stem cell biologists to create purer and more functional micro tissues. There are many stem cell biologists now working on, on protocols that create better, more mature um, and purer populations of, of cells or tissues. And we can port straight into those advances and, and take advantage of those in our, in our 3D bioprinting process. Then in, in our arena, uh, we're going to really start looking into how functional can we get these tissues. So there is work to be done to reach, you know, the, the level of function that, that is present in the body. So in the kidney work, for example, they're manufacturing a, a the, the organoid um, is just a part of the kidney. They don't yet have the collecting duct, which is which is what sort of sorts the the uh, filtrate the urine out and connect it to the urethra. So there's this work to be done again on the stem cell biology level to create micro tissues that are more full embodiments of the functional unit of the kidney, the, the nephron. At the scaling and therapeutics level, really our, our next step is to begin testing um, these, these pieces of tissue in animal models to see if when implanted, they can be stably perfused by the uh, circulatory system of the animal to see that they're able to provide a functional, measurable benefit in the animal, to look into problems of surgical anastomosis. So you need to be able to connect the vasculature that, that we print up to the vasculature of the animal. And this relies on, on the tissue being tough enough to hold sutures for that a surgeon would use to, to sort of connect vessels up. And so there's work to be done in, in creating tougher tissues that can, uh, that can withstand that. So yeah, lots of lots of problems. But it is okay now to use the O word. Well, it is our dream. And if since in, in two, three years ago, we weren't even sure if this was possible, we wanted to really make sure we didn't overhype the work. And we're not creating organs. These are not organs ready for transplantation. Um, but we do have a pathway that we think, given further development in the field, really is a very tangible pathway that we will be pursuing. And so that is our vision. So we do aim to, to build therapeutic organs and, and we think we have the right sets of technologies to, to really begin scaling and, and maintaining and building tissues that could function at, a, at an organ level. So we're now we're able, with caveats, we're allowed to use the big O word. So Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Terrence. Kim Holman's experience with her startup influences her perspective at the VIS. I know that the VIS, uh, one of its uh, other aspects, besides all this interdisciplinary work and putting all these teams together and so on, is the, uh, the emphasis on translation. How much when you're doing your work do you have that entrepreneur hat on or, or in, your, in, in your perspective? In my perspective, I always have that hat on. However, uh, especially given my background with starting a company in the past, um, but really it's only been in the last year or two when we started to say the O word that <laughs> I started to think of it less as an academic exercise and more of a, let's not focus on the minutia. Let's figure out how we actually build this thing, right. And get it to patients because I could see a path, right. And, 
what would investors need to get excited, right? What, what would the demonstrations need to be? Um, how do we get this thing funded? This is so expensive, so incredibly expensive. And Jennifer is incredibly good at getting money, but it, you know, it's only going to go so far, right? Essentially, eventually, we're not going to be able to have enough money to make enough cells because we deal with all this thickness, right, and density. Um, and so that's kind of you know the road ahead for us. I think is I hope to see this translated, and I hope to see um, us working in a company someday to do this. And so taking this work that was seeded in this beautiful place of the Wies in Harvard and then growing it somewhere outside and getting it to the patient would be incredibly exciting to me. She credits the culture at the Wies with keeping her in the fold. So the Wies really enjoys sitting at the interface between academia and then translating technologies to the world. What the Wies uniquely allows us to do is de-risk technologies inside the Wies um, until they can get to a fundable state, you know, by outside investment. And that's really exciting for all of us because someone like me who's highly entrepreneurial that might have left academia years ago to pursue more entrepreneurial purposes can stay in de-risk technologies and learn from the business folks on staff of how to create more valuable technologies that eventually then spin out into larger entities in the, in the real world. Thank you very much, Kim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Terrence. I return to Jennifer Lewis. Can we talk briefly about the new VICE 3D Organ Engineering Initiative that you're doing with Chris Chen? Why create a specific initiative and, and what's the vision of what comes out of that? The goal of the initiative is to, to really develop the foundational uh, tools that are needed to build vital organs. And we're focusing on the kidney, the heart, and the liver. And together with Chris Chen and Sangeeta Bhatti at MIT, we really have, I think, the right ingredients to, to attack these goals. And we're also fortunate to have clinical collaborators that will help drive us towards this end result. What is the, the area that Chris Chen excels in that makes this team make sense? Well, Chris is a, not only a biomedical engineer, but he also has his medical degree. So he brings a, a tremendous depth uh, in bioengineering. And he's been working in tissue engineering far longer than we have. He also has a deep knowledge of, of vasculature and particularly how to create through uh, a process known as angiogenesis, the capillary bed. So if we print these large channels, we're still not all the way there. We have to sprout off of them capillaries because we have capillaries in our body as well. And in fact, within a given human being, there's roughly 60,000 miles of vascular uh, vessels. So if you think about laying all of the blood vessels and capillaries end to end, you could reach almost halfway to the moon. So um, we're not going to print all of that, right? We're only going to print the highways. And then we want, again, biology to take over and build the capillaries. And Chris is really an expert in that. You mentioned um, Sangeeta Bhatia, who's at uh, MIT. You said what uh, Chris brings to the to the team. What about Sangeeta? Oh, Sangeeta um, is a world-leading expert in the liver and specifically in liver tissue engineering. And um, she's already been collaborating quite closely with Chris Chen uh, to do um, liver tissues that um, have already been implanted in animal model. The initiative is focusing on the kidney, the heart, and the liver. So between the three of us, with myself focusing on the kidney and Chris on the heart, and then Sangeeta's knowledge in the liver, um, we really have these three vital organs covered quite nicely. 
but I'm always interested in how being at the Wies affects your work, affects the way you think about things, affects what you think is possible. They really enable you to dream big and to take what we will call like a big swing, which is <laughs> 3D organ engineering certainly qualifies. Um, and, uh, and it's also what I find very valuable about the environment is that there is an emphasis on translation. So, you know, we, we always start with doing the best science we possibly can, but then we always also simultaneously look for opportunities to translate this out of the lab uh, into, you know, industry, whether it's through startups or through uh, other avenues, but to really have an impact on society. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jennifer. All this right. has been a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you, too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Disruptive 3D Bioprinting. I'm Terrence McNally. My guests have been Jennifer Lewis, Mark Schuyler Scott, and Kim Holman. You can learn more about their work as well as a broad and exciting range of other projects at the VIS website, vis.harvard.edu. That's w-y-s-s.harvard.edu, where you'll find articles, videos, animations, and additional podcasts. To have podcasts delivered to you, you can sign up at the VIS site or on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud.com. My thanks to Seth Kroll at the Wies Institute and to J.C. Swadek in production. And to you, our listeners, please share this podcast widely, and I look forward to being with you again soon.